You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. It's Tom Shaughnessy, your host, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to have Stephen Wolfram of Wolfram Alpha on the podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing just fine, thank you. Stephen, it's surreal to have you on the podcast considering how much I use Wolfram Alpha to teach me the things that my math teachers couldn't teach me. So I, I definitely thank you for that. It was it was important. So Stephen, you created a post recently called What is ChatGPT Doing? And I read it and it was the most perfect logical explanation, I think, of what LLMs are doing, a deep explanation on neural nets. And I came away with this kind of concise feeling that LLMs are just sort of probabilistically finishing our sentences, right? And that gave me some hope. It, it scared me a little bit on the future of AI. So I'd love to kind of start there. Um, what was your impetus for the for the post? What drove you to to want to to write that and to research? Oh, we've been I we've been interacting with OpenAI, and I'd been uh, doing things with LLMs, and I realized everybody I talked to said I don't understand how LLMs work, and I thought I more or less did understand how LLMs work. But I didn't have actually, I kind of, the big mystery of ChatGPT was why it worked. Because really nobody expected it to work, including the folks who built it. It was a big surprise that it, that it really worked. And, you know, in the, in the previous year, last year, there'd been a series of larger language models and they'd all been kind of crummy. And they, you know, they certainly couldn't write a coherent essay. They, they were, they kind of would, you know, complete sentences and then wander off and start saying random things. And suddenly ChatGPT started actually working and saying coherent things. And so I was sort of curious to understand what what did we just learn from that? What what happened? Um, and I think the thing that I kind of realized is that in a sense, there's a fairly deep sort of scientific result that we can kind of glean from ChatGPT and it has to do with uh, kind of just how complicated is this process of making human language. And we've kind of, uh, uh, I think what we, what we realize is that there's kind of a, a set of a structure to human language that we hadn't known was there before that ChatGPT has discovered for us and that it's then using to do what it's doing. And that's sort of, it's, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the big story there. And so I was, I was kind of, uh, was I was pleased to be able to sort of get some insight into why it works, and I don't think one could have predicted that, you know, at this number of at this size of neural net, suddenly things are going to start working or anything like that. But at least one could get some idea of why it was conceivable that something like this could work. It's awesome. It it's sort of hard for me to to understand or conceptualize that we can have the entire, you know, internet's worth of knowledge. Um, editing a couple billion parameters or numbers, and, and to produce something like ChatGPT or, or Bard, how do you how do you conceptualize or understand that? It makes me think that, and I think you mentioned this in your post, if I remember correctly, that maybe language isn't that hard. Maybe we aren't that smart. Yeah, well, I mean, the place it starts is, you know, you've got a sentence: the cat sat on the. What's going to be the next word? Okay, look on the internet. There's probably a hundred thousand pages where the next word is Matt. So good guess. Next word's going to be Matt. What for something as simple as that kind of task, you can basically just sample the internet and match up 
the words you've been given so far and say, what's the likely thing to come next? Now, that stops working after, you know, uh, when, when you're dealing with sort of long sentences that have never actually been written down before, then you have to have some other strategy for deciding what's going to come next. You can't just look at what's already out there on the internet and just use probabilities like that. And this is where the idea of neural nets comes in. And, you know, neural nets are this pretty old idea from 1943, actually, that originally arose as a kind of idealization of what people thought brains must be doing, of just having all these connections between nerve cells and so on, and this kind of idea of of weights of connection. So, you know, one nerve cell fires and it uh, sends sort of signals to 10,000 other nerve cells, and each of those nerve cells gets that signal with a certain weight. And if the total signals that come into a nerve cell exceed some value, for example, then the nerve cell will fire and, and send data onto the next set of nerve cells. And that's, you know, that's what we physiologically think is going on in brains. And back in 1943, uh, it was this kind of idealization of that that was invented that's kind of a, a pure sort of computational or mathematical idealization. And uh, uh, over the years, people made bigger and bigger networks for a long time. The networks did nothing interesting at all. And then sort of the big time when people really started paying attention to this was 2012, when uh, suddenly networks like that started to be able to do object identification tasks and images, like say, this is a cat versus this is a dog. And that was a surprise to people. And uh, uh, then, you know, a decade later, we have this other surprise of being able to uh, sort of do things with language. And, and the thing that's really going on there is, is can you make, uh, can you sort of encapsulate the essence of what's happening in language just by uh, specifying these weights in the neural net? Is that enough? Is that, is that a good model for what's going on? You know, when we think about making kind of models for things in the world, uh, sort of uh, the, the original big idea from 300 years ago was let's write down a math formula that represents something that's going on in the world and we can figure out you know this this particular um, you know ball that we drop is going to hit the ground at this speed because we have a mathematical formula that says depending on the height this is how fast it will hit the ground well sort of neural net is a vastly more complicated version of that so for example we can think of chat gpt as being kind of a, uh, uh, a, 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 a just a formula that says this is the given given a specification of what words are going in. You turn those words into numbers. You then compute some mathematical function that happens to be a couple hundred billion terms long, and out of it comes a number, and that number or a collection of numbers, and those numbers tell you. The probabilities for different possible words to come next, and you know that's what's that's what's sort of going on inside. Now, how do you get those uh, few hundred billion numbers? Well, you do that by saying, uh, let's let's try and tweak this neural net so that it will correctly reproduce sentences we already know are out there on the web. So we might have a trillion words that that we have from things that are out there on the web. Let you know what we want to do then is to is to say, given that one, the, given that one had sort of specified the following sequence of twenty-five words, 
the one that's actually out there on the web next is this. Try and tweak all those parameters in the neural net so that it will correctly reproduce that that should be the next word that comes after after the ones one's already specified. So that's kind of the that's kind of the idea. Now the the thing that's surprising is you know that it actually works and that what one gets is something where it's kind of providing a a a guess for what comes as the next word that agrees with the kinds of guesses that we humans would make. It's it's not obvious. I mean, so so take the example of images. It's a little bit easier to see that. So you know what goes into an image identifier is a bunch of pixel values. What's supposed to come out is cat, dog, elephant, house, whatever else. And so what has to happen is a very large number of different possible pixels that could represent an image correspond to the thing that it's supposed to say is a cat. Very large number of different configurations of pixels should correspond to the thing it says is a dog. But the question is, what, what, is, the, what is the way of characterizing what collection of pixels should be identified as a cat? So for example, for us, if we put the cat in a dog suit, or we, you know, have the cat wear some strange, you know, antennae that make it look like a beetle or something, you know, is that still a cat? Is it not a cat? There's a point at which it's a stuffed cat, and then it's a this and so that. Um, and, you know, the decision of when is it really a cat is something that we humans sort of have some way to make. And uh, it's, uh, and you kind of can say, well, also, we could take an image of the cat and we could start doing image processing on it. We could start sort of distorting the thing and making it, you know, uh, making the image kind of have this whole, you know, swirl pattern or something. Is it still supposed to be a cat? Well, it's uh, those decisions we make as humans in a particular way. One could imagine that some, uh, you know, some alien would make it a different way, or even a, a cat might make it a different way. We don't know what cats are thinking inside very well. Um, and so the the sort of the interesting fact is that neural nets make the decisions in more or less the same ways that we humans make the decisions, or at least operationally they do so. That is, if we say, is this a reasonable result for saying it's a cat versus it's a dog, it looks reasonable to us humans. And and so that's in a sense what's happening is this neural net is capturing whatever the essence of how we humans make decisions about what the image is of. And it's the same kind of thing with words. It's capturing the essence of the way that you, we humans spin words together. And again, wasn't obvious it would be the case. It wasn't obvious that, uh, that this sort of model of, of sort of brain-like behavior was enough. Maybe it were acquired, you know, some elaborate new physics of brains or something to be able to do something as elaborate as spin out words and language. It doesn't seem like it does. And I think the thing that we kind of learn from the success of ChatGPT is, is that there are regularities. So for example, in we know that there is syntactic grammar of language. So we know that language gets put together with nouns and verbs and you know, sentences might have the form, you know, noun, verb, adjective, noun, or something. Uh, that but there are many sentences that have the form noun, verb, adjective, noun that are complete nonsense. Um, and uh, the so just getting the sort of syntactic grammar right is not enough to give you 
something that you would think of as a meaningful essay or even a meaningful piece of fiction. So there's a bit more to it. So I think what, what ChatGPT has sort of discovered is that there's kind of a semantic, a meaning-based grammar of language where there are ways to put words together so that, that, so that you'll, you'll always make things that are at least somewhat meaningful. They're not just meaningless jumbles of words. Now, you know, what, you know, you would think something like this would have been known before. And there are examples where it's known. For example, uh, logic, you know, discovered by, well, at least first talked about by Aristotle back in antiquity. You know, Aristotle noticed that the arguments people were making had certain particular forms, certain, you know, all all turtles are green, Fred is a turtle, therefore Fred is green. Um, the, uh, uh, but it didn't need to be all turtles are green, it could be all elephants are pink, it, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could kind of lift above the specifics of particular words and say, all P a Q, you know, uh, R is a P, therefore whatever. That, that becomes sort of a more formal statement uh, a, a, something that that depends on that that sort of captures a structure that is meaningful. So logic is one example of a way to sort of capture a structure that is meaningful. And by the way, you know things like ChatGPT have learnt logic the same way that Aristotle figured out logic by just looking at lots of sentences written in in human languages. So you know the the expectation is that there are other regularities beyond things like pure logic that represent kind of ways to formalize what one is saying in language to force the language to be in some sense meaningful. Now, that it's meaningful doesn't mean it's correct. You know, you can say the elephant flew to the moon. That's something which is perfectly meaningful. We, we both have an idea of what that might mean. It doesn't happen to have been a thing that seems to have actually happened in the world so far. So, it's uh, you know there's a there's a difference between what is meaningful and what is something that actually happened so to speak. Um, now I think in I mean the first big surprise is that you can kind of spin out an essay that seems meaningful. Um, it's it's a quite separate issue whether the thing is you know whether whether it's actually the reality of what happened so to speak. And that's that's not really what uh, you know what what. What something like ChatGPT sort of signs up for is produce reasonable text that somehow, in some way, conforms to what it's read from a few billion pages on the web and a few million books, and that's that's kind of the the the, the story. But I think you know, in in um, ChatGPT is kind of a very immediately consumer interesting kind of thing, but what underlies its success is something I think quite deep and scientific, so to speak. And in a sense, you know, Aristotle kind of started thinking about things like semantic grammar, didn't quite get there. 1600s, people thought about it again. It's been a bit of a, uh, been a bit sparse, the thinking about these kinds of things in the years since. Uh, people kind of just sort of said, well, it seems rather hard. You know, there's, an, yeah, right. That, that's, that's, that's kind of the, um, that's kind of the picture. It's an incredible, incredible thinking on my question. I have so many follow-up questions. I, I'd like to just focus on one follow-up question in particular. You mentioned in your description that 
ChatGPT, Aristotle have all looked at the ways things have been done in the past, all of the texts on the internet, all these arguments, things like that. It seems like the descriptions I've read are that these models are sort of codified. They're set in stone. The parameters are set. You know, they'll always sort of do things the same way. What what is what are your views on intelligence and how these models learn and grow, right? Because to me, it's what sets us apart as humans. But when I think about the parameters and the models of ChatGPT and reinforcement learning, I don't really get the sense that they're learning in a similar way that humans are, despite you know their makeup of the neural nets being somewhat similar to the way we operate. And I could be totally honest here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the the learning, you know, we all learn language when we're young kids and we learn it by hearing a bunch of other language. And I don't think it, I don't think that process is that different. I think what is, I mean, I think you were also kind of uh, thinking about this point that sort of can a, a neural net sort of invent something new? Well, it can certainly write essays that have never been written before. It can, you know, it even is doing things with a certain degree of randomness. So it will always, you know, you ask it to write the same essay twice. It'll, it'll, you know, always produce different words for that, um, uh, those, those different essays. It will, they will seem original, so to speak, at that level. Um, it's, uh, I think the, the question of whether it can really kind of figure out something that goes beyond what we humans already kind of know on the web, well, only a bit. I mean, for example, it could do things like say, there's this grand analogy between this one set of things here and this other set of things there. That's something by seeing sort of the patterns of how one thing is talked about, it could be a surprise to humans who say, oh yeah, that analogy exists, but I didn't know that. Another thing it can do is to kind of recognize trends. If you say, you know, what was the uh, um, favorite color to paint apartments in the 1950s or something, it has a reasonable chance to be able to kind of go, know that it's it's reading a bunch of documents, it's read a bunch of documents that are about the 1950s and that talk about apartments, and it has a reasonable chance of being able to come up with a conclusion about that, that you might say is sort of new knowledge because, uh, you know, no, no human had gone through and sort of uh, uh, done a census of apartments in the 1950s probably. It's something that has to be extracted from kind of this uh, ambient uh, collection of information. But you know, when it comes to figure out a new fact about science or mathematics or something like this, no, it's not going to be able to do that. That's not that's not its nature. That's something for which doing you know the the doing actual computation is the thing that makes that possible. In um, uh, I mean, I would say that the well. It can come up with sort of a. It can randomly come up with some hypothesis, but and and maybe it can make an argument for whether that hypothesis is true or not. But the thing that is really the 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 kind of the power tool way of getting new knowledge is to use this idea of computation, which interestingly sort of emerged between the time when neural nets were first invented and now. That is when neural nets were first invented, and people thought we're going to make you know, computers are going to be giant electronic brains. Uh, that was before people thought of the idea of using computation to just follow rules and find new things that could be true about how those rules work. 
and and now we're we're sort of back to this thing where we have something that is a bit like a giant electronic brain, but it is uh, but we have this much more powerful technique for finding out new things about what's what sort of exists in uh, in in the in the abstract world and so on. So I, I think the, uh, uh, the the question, and by the way, that that sort of power tool of computation is very non-human. I mean, it's it's something where you say, uh, can you run this program in your head and work out what's going to happen? I think essentially nobody can do that. That's something, but a computer finds it easy to run a program and figure out what will happen. So in a sense, the sort of power tool for for making new things is something not very human, not very neural net-like. Um, it's uh, what neural nets are good at doing is capturing what brains are also good at doing, which is uh, kind of extrapolating from you know large amounts of fairly structured uh, sort of data that uh, exists in something like language. So you know, I think that um, the sort of uh, you know people people always it's a long sort of trend that people are always like, we humans are very special. So there must be something that we have that is different from what these purely technological systems have. And well, if you say, well, I wanted to be just like a human, well, it's got to have, you know, two legs and, and 10 fingers, and it's got to have all the kind of parameters that are actually the human parameters, so to speak. And as soon as you go away from that, there will be aspects of it that aren't human, so to speak. And you can always say, well, the thing you didn't capture in this technological system is the thing that's essential about being human. Um, and that's a, you know, but then you're going to find out the only thing that can be a human is a human, so to speak. And as soon as you go away from that, you can ask, you know, is, is this AI, uh, you know, you can ask about different parameters of what the AI can do, you can ask about sort of can the AI, uh, for example, the the thing that was the big surprise with ChatGPT, can an AI write a reasonable piece of text? People believe before, you know, whatever it is, eight or nine months ago, people basically believe no, that was far away, that would not be possible with uh, uh, with the kind of things we'd imagined to be technologically there. Now, I think what tends to happen is. Uh, you know, we've had this sort of shock that yes, it's actually possible. I I don't think that you could say, oh look, this thing was possible. So now in another year, you know, this other big thing is going to be possible. That's not how it works. What what happened, for example, in 2012 when image identification was a thing, sort of where there was a breakthrough in, in neural nets, uh, that suddenly became possible. It's a little bit better today. Not that much better. It was mainly this this sort of one moment when that finally got became in scope, and now we've had this moment when kind of writing and understanding language in some sense has come into scope, and I'm I'm not expecting that there will be in that particular domain something sort of you know where where it's well we got this now, and then we're going to have this amazing thing along the same lines. I mean, there'll be particular things like being able to understand and generate videos, things like that. Those will happen, and those will be quite important. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I don't. I think this is one of these things where it's kind of a, a, a uh, 
there are these jumps and you get to something and then there's sort of incremental improvement and polishing. I mean, from a practical point of view, the thing that is undoubtedly much more important is the kind of the harness that's put around the technology and the question of how do you actually use it? What are the use cases? I mean, there are, you know, for me right now, you know, one common use case for LLMs, large language models, things like ChatGPT is, you know, I get some digest of uh, um, things that have been written actually about LLMs every day. And, you know, they have abstracts and the abstracts are pretty hard to read. And so I'm like, okay, let's just have the LLM make a two-sentence summary of every document. And the two-sentence summaries are kind of boring at some level. They're very bland in terms of text, but they're very easy to read. And it's a much better solution for kind of getting getting that information into uh, in, into a person, so to speak, than having to read every different person's differently styled abstract and so on. And that's, you know, it's an example where the ability of of ChatGPT to make a beautifully styled piece of text is not so relevant. One's using other abilities that it has, and one is finding a use case where its strengths are really, you know, are, re are really useful. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of other use cases. I mean, for example, I'm sure that AI tutoring will be a good use case, um, and where essentially the AI starts to get a pretty good model of what you understand and what you don't understand, and will be better than most people at saying, the one thing you need to know is this thing here. Also, you know, when it comes to the, the AI kind of trying to keep you excited about some, I don't know, piece of, let's say, math you're trying to, trying to learn, it's going to be much better. If you say, I'm really interested in duck racing or something, it's going to be able to uh, kind of state all its problems in terms of duck races and hopefully, you know, keep you more interested in, in what's going on. So, you know, and the, there, are, there are many other kinds of use cases for, for LLMs, which I think play to their strengths and other use cases which play to their weaknesses. I mean, if you say, I want my LLM to write a uh, sort of correct newspaper article um, that, you know, makes up nothing or, or write a definitive section of a, of a reference book, it's not going to work very well. It's um, if you say uh, something like, you know, if you if you have something where if it achieves sort of ninety percent success, you are happy, and it doesn't matter that ten percent is nonsense. That that you know, if it's if it's giving you sort of summaries of articles or something like that, and it's ninety percent right, you're coming out, and you can read those more easily than you could the originals. You're coming out way ahead, even if ten percent of the descriptions aren't quite right. Um, but uh, you know, it's a, it's sort of different use cases for different things. I mean, I think the thing we've been much involved in is connecting our sort of precise computational language to LLMs, and that kind of gives you the best of both worlds. Because, for example, you can say to the LLM kind of vaguely, "Oh, I want to set up this computational kind of thing." It will then write a piece of Wolfram language, computational language, which is perfectly precise. And then if you're very brave, you can just say, run it. Or if you're not quite so brave, you read the computational language. You read it as kind of an, a precise notation for what you want to do computationally. And then you say, oh, okay, that's actually what I meant. Now let me go run that. 
And then you can take that little piece of computational language and it becomes this very solid kind of brick that you can start building a big tower on top of. If you say, well, I'm going to take the direct output from the LLM, a bunch of words or even a, some code, and I'm going to use that to make a brick that's going to build this big system, that's very unlikely to work. Because when 10% of those bricks are misshapen and, uh, and wrong, your tower is going to fall over, so to speak. It's, uh, and and you know, the, the very typical case is you say, I want to specify this thing computationally, and it will produce something where when you look at it, you say, yeah, okay, I can see how you would have thought that was what I meant, but that's not actually what I meant, so to speak. And uh, you know, the role of computational language is to be a precise representation of what you mean computationally, and and that's kind of where uh, where you have something that you can make use of kind of this this sort of power of computation that is different from the power that that LLMs have. I love how you're talking about Wolfram Alpha and AI, right? Like I saw a couple uh, videos recently on Google's efforts with AI with. I think it was called MedPalm, and it was like 60 or 70% of the way to being an expert doctor. And then they took a bunch of doctors, asked them questions, had the doctors give written responses, and it got this model to like 95 or 100%, something crazy like that. So it does seem like there is a, a world where it's AI and human and not just AI. And it sounds like from what you're doing with Wolfram, would, would that track well? Or Well, I think I don't know that particular thing that you're talking about, but but um, uh, you know the thing to understand is there is sort of the idea of machine learning where you give a bunch of examples and you say follow along with examples like these, and then there is the idea of something more formal where you say like you do in mathematics, you know there is this thing you know x squared minus one and it has these factors x plus one times x minus one or something, and that's a formally defined thing. There's no kind of, oh, we've got five examples and maybe another example will work in a different way. It's something where you can be precise about what's going to happen. Now, the thing that we've achieved, I mean, I spent the last, I don't know, 40 years trying to do this, is, is uh, to be able to represent a lot of things in the world in a way so that you can compute precisely from them. So those things might be, I don't know, the positions of cities on the surface of the earth. You know, what's the shortest path between those cities? What's the uh, sort of elevation difference between the cities or something? What's the, uh, uh, you know, how far is the city from an ocean or something? These are things where if one, one can represent those things in a sort of precise computational way, one can say, it's this city represented by this computational entity. It's this ocean with this kind of uh, polygonal boundary and so on. And then one can actually do computations to work out the answer to you know how far is the city from an ocean type thing, and that's really a different kind of story from what happens with kind of the the more more directly human like oh I've 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 heard a bunch of things about cities and oceans and now I'm going to just in my mind figure out uh, you know the answer to some question I mean in a sense what happened in sort of the history of, of human thought is people for a long time thought, well, you know, whatever there is that can be figured out, we can figure out in our brains. And that's sort of all we need. And, you know, that that's what, when people thought about um, things like, oh, natural laws and physics and things like this, they would always think about that as natural philosophy. 
can we use kind of just pure figuring things out by by kind of uh, by pure thinking work out what will happen in the world and then well 300 years ago or so now kind of this idea of using math came in and the idea that you could actually sort of power through working out how things will work in the world by computing things with with math now we have a vastly more powerful way to do that with computation and it's a thing which is is really different from the things that we humans get to easily do there's there's things we humans can easily do and there's things that computation can easily do what had been the case is that things that computation could easily do didn't include a lot of things humans found easy to do like say that's a picture of a cat or something what's what's happened in the last uh, well 10 years or more is that a lot of those things that seem to be human only kinds of things we learnt we can actually do those computationally as well but the method is this kind of you know uh, learn from examples type method which is which is really a different thing from know the sort of precise formal specification you know create the algorithm and so on and and work out what will happen i mean that's a that's really i, I see those as being two really quite different directions where one of them is kind of do it like humans do because in a sense chatgpt its big story is write stuff like humans do it's not go figure out some computational result that no human has ever seen before and that is is something very different from what humans do that makes sense it's definitely a lot to think about and not to backtrack at all but maybe to to ask a question in line with this on the llm side you referenced that there are these step function improvements in technology like something like chat gpt something like bard you have this crazy increase and then sort of a plateau for a long time things like that a lot of people are think that these foundational models will have a crazy impact on our lives beyond chat beyond questions right that this type is different that technology will increase at a speed that we're not used to and we're not even ready for it and we can't control it it sounds like you may be on the other side of that do you think that these foundational models will have a, a, a guess an insane impact on our lives over the next five years, or do you think people might be getting a little out of hand with their views? Well, look, I mean, it's a piece of automation. There have been lots of pieces of automation in the history of our civilization. You know, when people started making farm machinery, it was meant you didn't have to pull the plow yourself or get your ox to do it or something. It's even, even getting the ox to do it was already a, a piece of sort of automation and innovation. I mean, I think the, um, uh, frankly, even getting a plow was a piece of automation. But, but um, uh, you know, what, what happens is there's a whole category of things that humans have to do for themselves. And then automation happens. And the things that humans had to do for themselves, they don't have to do for themselves anymore. And there's a bunch of jobs that did exist go away. And the interesting thing at least based on what I've seen looking at, uh, looking at this history, is that essentially whenever a whole bunch of jobs go away because of automation, what comes out is a bunch of new jobs. And what was just one job, like you know agriculture, for example, becomes, after that's automated, there are then a zillion different jobs that have to do with different kinds of you know, 
I don't know, food distribution and preparation and this and that and the other. Um, and, and I think we'll see the same kind of thing here, that there are certain kinds of roles that will be somewhat automated. And, and the, thing, the thing that's sort of shocking to people right now is people have kind of assumed that kind of white collar sort of knowledge work kinds of roles were like, oh, those are never going to be automated. It's only the, you know, the, the uh, uh, things like, um, um, you know, warehouse workers or something where it's going to be automated. Actually, it turns out it's really hard to make a robot that will do, you know, picking in a warehouse. So right now, that's not getting automated. Um, I mean, robots help, but that's, you know, human dexterity still far exceeds robot dexterity. One day, that might change. Might, that particular one might change very quickly. Um, but people had not expected that this kind of knowledge work kind of thing would be something that would have any kind of automation. And so, for example, you know, there's an awful lot of the uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the kind of knowledge work economy that has to do with writing reports about things and reading reports about things. And the fact is, LLMs are a pretty good linguistic user interface. You know, when you say, oh, in order to uh, sort of file this particular kind of thing, I need to write it up as a big report. But actually, I've only got three points I want to make. You can just tell the LLM, take those three points I want to make, puff it out into a big report. It's five pages long. File the big report. And then, well, what happens? Well, the person on the other end probably says, actually, there are only two things I want to know from this report. So they get another LLM to take that five-page report and grind it down and tell them the two things they actually wanted to know from that report. Now, you know, that whole process used to involve somebody's got to spend, you know, three days, they've got to write the report. Somebody else has got to spend a day, they've got to read the report and so on. All that can get automated away. And, and that, those kinds of activities, there are lots of people with lots of education who learned how to write those reports, how to read those reports. And yes, a bunch of that will get automated away. But, you know, for example, one of the things that, uh, you know, there are all these new jobs that sort of are starting to emerge, like a prompt engineer, an AI psychologist, you know, an AI ethics person, you know, all these kinds of things are a sort of new job categories. I mean, and for example, with prompt engineering, sort of an interesting one, because you might think, oh, this is an AI, it's a computer thing. You know, all these people who are educated in, in sort of mechanical computer science or something, they're going to be the winners in prompt engineering. But it doesn't seem to be true. It seems like the main skill you need for prompt engineering is expository writing. That is, if, if you can tell a human what you want, that's a pretty good way to tell the AI what you want, because actually the AI learned its ways of sort of thinking about things from what it read from humans. I mean, I think that one of the things that, you know, the bunch of things will happen, I think, in the kind of the world of, of human jobs. I mean, I think that the emphasis on the mechanics of doing things will get less, which is something that, you know, th there's a lot of times where people said, I'm going to learn this very specialized thing and I'm going to learn this, this kind of tower of technical machinery to be able to do that myself. And, you know, it's going to turn out that a lot of that can be automated. So, for example, programming, you know, I've spent the last, I don't know, 40 years basically building what's now kind of the highest level uh, way of doing programming that exists and where 
you know, a lot of things where people say, oh my gosh, I've got to write a thousand lines of code. Well, you don't actually. It's, you know, it's two lines of Wolfram language code. You may feel like you're doing something more useful if you just wrote a thousand lines of code, but it wasn't necessary. That was, you know, we already knew how to automate that kind of thing. And I think people are, are realizing that, well, actually, it's even more shocking if you can just type in and in sort of natural language something and get those get you know a thousand lines of roughly correct code um, that that makes it seem like no it didn't really need a human to write that code and so I think you know there's a I mean we we already knew in the case of programming we really already knew that that was highly automatable um, it's uh, uh, and and that's um, but I think in um, uh, you know so there'll be a lot of kinds of things which have been things people needed to do. Even things people got lots of education to be able to do, which turn out to be kind of a little bit shockingly automatable. But what will emerge is, I suspect, just a huge diversity of new kinds of things that were previously inaccessible. I mean, I think one great example of this from the past is telephone operators. There used to be lots of manual telephone operators, you know, plugging wires when people wanted to make phone calls. That all went away when electronic switching equipment came into existence. But the presence of electronic switching equipment created the whole telecommunications industry, which then produced a huge diversity of other kinds of jobs. So, you know, I think the, the general rule is, you know, kind of the automation can make getting something done easier, but it doesn't help in defining what should be done. So in other words, it, that, that still remains a, a, a necessarily kind of human activity to say, okay, you know, there are all these things, you know, you could use a generative AI system to make, you know, a gazillion different pictures, but which picture should I make? You know, it's, it's, you could just tell it. In fact, I just did a bit of a study on this on kind of what's out there in what I call interconcept space. So if you if you use a generative AI and it has concepts, you know, like you can say I use the example of a cat in a party hat. You know, you tell it make that, it's going to make pictures like that. But there are the way that it represents the concept of cat in a party hat is some array of a thousand numbers. And so you can say, well, what happens with other values of those thousand numbers? Those are no longer human concepts. That we have words for and so on, they're out there in kind of interconcept space, kind of like interstellar space or something. It's between the concepts that we humans know, and there's tons of stuff out there interconcept space that even a uh, you know a generative AI that's been trained on, for example, human human images humans have put on the web, it'll just happily generate lots and lots of images, which sometimes look reminiscent of things that we humans care about often do not. Um, and that that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the question then is, well, which of those things are we going to care about? I mean, just to give some sense of, uh, of how small is the set of things that we've already kind of thought about, if you, it's about, well, even for the kind of thing I was looking at, it's like one in 10 to the 600, 10 to the minus 600 of the space is actually concepts that we humans have described. So all of the rest of the space is things we humans don't have words for and haven't described. And so that's kind of a sense of, of how, you know, there's this vast ocean of kind of what is 
e even in that case, things which are sort of aligned with kind of images humans have put on the web, there's a vast collection of things that we've never explored. Now, as kind of culture and civilization expand, some of those things that right now are just, oh, that's a weird picture, but I don't know what that is. Eventually, that picture will get a name. That type of picture will get a name. And then people will say, oh, I want a such and such on my, uh, you know, on my mouse pad, if anybody still has mouse pads. Um, but, uh, uh, good, okay. It's, uh, the, um, but uh, anyway, and, and, and then, you know, once it's been given a name, people will start kind of thinking in terms of that and so on. But that's kind of the, um, uh, that it, there's a sort of this, this process of there's, there's sort of a lot out there to explore. The humans are the ones who get to pick what will be explored. Uh, that's what we will, what we will choose to care about as a civilization, society, whatever. Um, that's something which is sort of a necessarily human activity, not amenable to automation by definition, because, you know, we could just, the, 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 com the computational system could just go and enumerate all these different cases, but we humans will just say, you know, that's just not something we recognize, not something we care about. So, uh, I mean, I, I think in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, what, what will happen in the world, I mean, there's another point, which is there are increasing number of systems in the world which we will get run by AIs or by automation of some kind. And one of the things that one has to wonder about is, okay, you know, there's automation of something about, you know, interest rates from a central bank, or there's automation of something about some other thing about how the world is set up. Okay, well, what, you know, how should that work? And the difficulty is that people have this idea, and it's it's kind of a bizarre sort of wrong thinking from the kind of success of things like mathematics. They have the idea, well, if it if it's made automated, then there'll be a right answer. Problem is that there are sort of questions about what we want to have happen to which there is no right answer. I mean, famous kinds of things. You know, you've got the self-driving car, it's driving along this road. You know, the uh, the llama runs out from one side of the road, and uh, you know, two uh, dogs run out from the other side of the road. You know, which way should the self-driving car swerve? Should it kill the llama or the two dogs? Type thing. And um, yes, yes. The uh, and so you know, and and that's a thing where you've got to have okay. It's now necessary to turn sort of the ethical philosophical discussion into a piece of code, and or or get something to decide that. But the question is, what's the right answer? And the answer is there isn't a right answer. It depends. You know, it might turn out. The, the Lama is the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the major religious symbol of this group of 10,000 people living in this place. And it might turn out that one of, you know, the dog is the pet of this particular, you know, person with the, this characteristic and that characteristic. In the end, the question of what you want to happen is, is a very kind of, well, what do the humans want to have happen? And it's the same thing with the uh, you know, with any of these kind of economic things where you say, okay, well, you know, I can turn this lever 
so that 90% of the world is very happy, 10% is extremely unhappy. I can turn the lever differently so that 99% of the world is reasonably happy, but not terribly, those kinds of things. What should it do? And the answer is there's no sort of mathematical right answer to those questions. It depends on what we humans want. And so one of the things that sort of becomes, is we're kind of shining a spotlight on what we've got to decide, because in the end, the code has to say the car drives left or right type thing. And so this is something where being exposed to this kind of we're automating things means we've actually got to make sort of, uh, uh, we've got to actually decide what we want, so to speak. And I think that's, you know, that is one of the kind of coming adventures, I suppose, for, for our society and civilization is this question of, of sort of how do we codify what we want? I mean, we've, we've done that in constitutions of countries, in systems of laws, things like this. Um, it's getting a little bit more pointed because there are things when one puts in automation, there are things where it's kind of like, well, you don't quite have the same wiggle room that you have, and you have to be more, more definite about what, what you want. And also, there are a lot of issues that come up with, with AIs that are really very different from issues that have come up before. I mean, the key reason is because there's a thing that's sort of making decisions, but it doesn't really have any, it doesn't appear to have any kind of skin in the game. It's not like it's a human and, oh my gosh, you know, if the human does absolutely the wrong thing, the human will be, you know, ruined, so to speak. It's, it's the computer is sitting on some server rack somewhere and, uh, you know, it's kind of like it might have a, uh, you know, it might have a point of view that it wants to keep running, so to speak. But it's a very different, for us humans, at least it feels very different to say, look, you just unplug the computer. You can just erase its memory if you want to. Um, now, you know, even right there, that's a that's a that's an interesting kind of AI ethics question is, you know, do AIs, should AIs have rights to not have their memories erased? And you might say, well, it's just a computer, it doesn't matter. But if you think about things like, well, that computer might have made friends with ten thousand people, and those people would be very upset if you erased the memory of that computer. And so then you've got this sort of entangled uh, situation where it isn't just oh I've got this you know this machine and I can do whatever I want with it so it's kind of a a um, but I think uh, I mean that there are a lot of kind of there are a lot of complicated things which people don't yet haven't really internalized yet I mean another one is people might say well okay you've got these these automated systems and if we know what the underlying rules for the automated system are we can just know exactly what it's going to do. Well, it doesn't work that way because, well, there's this thing I kind of introduced as a piece of science years ago, but but it's kind of uh, slowly kind of sort of its effects are being understood in lots of different places, the phenomenon of computational irreducibility. Even if you know the rules by which a system operates, uh, you you to know what the system will do, you kind of just have to run those rules and see what happens. You don't get to just say, and I know the answer, it's going to be 35, uh, you know, and, and immediately say that. One's used to being able to immediately say that because when one deals with mathematical formulas and so on, it's uh, uh, those kind of a setup so that they can just sort of jump ahead and say, and the answer is such and such. But that's, that's not, in these computational settings, that's not how things work. And so that means when you say, okay, for example, you know, you could say, well, 
I want to check my AI can't do anything wrong. Let me open it up and let me look at what's inside the AI and let me look, oh, it's got these billion weights inside some neural net. Well, I then, then I can tell it won't do anything wrong because I can look at those billion weights. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. You you know, to predict all the possible things that that neural net could do, it's you really basically have to run the neural net and see what happens. But the trade-off that one has is if you have a system that's simple enough that you can predict what it will do, then in a sense, there's no point in it doing it because why not just use your prediction to say what will happen? And if you say, well, I, you know, I want the system to really be doing something significant, then almost by definition, you can't immediately say what it's going to do. So you have this kind of trade-off. You either have something which is powerful or controllable. You don't get to have both of those options. And you know, we've, we've in, the, in the past, in sort of the early days of automation, when you were using you know, like horses for automation or something, you had some idea what the horse was going to do, but you certainly didn't know how the horse worked inside. Then you know, post-industrial revolution, it became much more common to say, well, I can see the gears and levers and so on inside the machine, and I can really know, you know sort of I can, I can tell a whole story about how these gears and levers are going to affect uh, you know, the outcome from the machine. So I think you know, the, the period of time when you kind of know what was going to happen is sort of coming to an end. And people really haven't gotten used to that. And, and the fact that sort of science became this thing where people thought what science means is kind of mathematical formulas and so on, that really has sort of confused the issue because people said, well, what, what do you mean you can't predict what's going to happen in this pandemic? You know, we've got a scientific model for what's for the pandemic. Surely we can just you know, immediately say what's going to happen. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, but people, because there's been so much of engineering, for example, over the last particularly 100 years or so, has been based on kind of cases where you can sort of do the math and figure out what will happen, because that's a good way to do engineering, because you kind of want to know what's going to happen in the traditional way of doing engineering. It's, it's kind of giving people the idea that, yes, that's how it's always going to work, which, which really isn't, isn't the, the, the final story. That's incredible. No, it's um, your, your thoughts on the ethics and the decision-making of AIs is, is super interesting. I don't, it, it sounds like everyone in the space is trying to figure that out right now, right? With alignment, how do we make sure that these AIs don't get too strong and kill us? But the way you're thinking about it in the sense of there are just decisions that are not correct and it depends, it gets super interesting. I don't, how do you think that we're going to approach that? Like, do we take an AI to court someday? And I, I don't even mean this jokingly. Like, do we teach them the right or wrong way? Like, what is the method for teaching? Well, I, I think the first, the problem is people can get awfully naive about this. And, and I'm afraid that there are, uh, I've been a little bit shocked that, you know, this kind of isn't really my business, the, the AI ethics world. But I've been kind of shocked that I've sort of been backed into thinking about it because there's sort of been, you know, there's on the one side, there's people who know about the technology of what's going on. On another side, there's kind of things like academic philosophers. And maybe on another side, there's regulators and so on. And it turns out that, you know, you kind of have to somehow interpolate between it's no good just being a techie because turns out the issues aren't just technology issues. Um, and it also, you know, I, I, I've been, you know, it's been kind of interesting to me to see 
kind of people say, well, there's just got to be an answer. It's got to be, you know, you can just use, surely you can just use science to get an answer. Well, it's not really a science question. There is science that's involved. So it's no good just being kind of, uh, just making philosophical arguments. In the end, you've got to write code, basically. Um, it is interesting that, that I think you know, there was a big kind of uh, flowering of interest in philosophy in the 1600s, 1700s, which was kind of a time when modern democracy got worked out. And uh, I think we're about to see kind of a another flowering of interest in kind of these philosophical types of questions as sort of the AI-based running of the world gets worked out. And I think it's, uh, I mean, this, the, in terms of how to think about it, um, it's actually kind of hard. I mean, it's, it's something where you really have to be thinking both about the technology and about the philosophy of it. And I think, you know, there are some exercises that I'd love more people to, to do. And I, it's kind of been like one of the exercises is, okay, imagine you're going to make up a constitution for a country in the post-AI world. You know, what kinds of provisions might it have? You know, might it say things like, you know, every AI, every AI must have an owner. Now, you know, there was a, you see, there was a, uh, I, you know, you're, you're, you're moving your head because you're thinking there was a time when there were sort of humans who had owners and things, and we think that was really bad. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, you know, you might say, look, we got to free the AIs. But then it's like, okay, should an AI always sort of label this thing was made by, by an AI? What does that mean? You know, if you, if you change five pixels in your image, do you then get, you know, when it, when it removed red eye in some, you know, from some flash photography, does it then get the made with AI, you know, sign or not? Um, you know, so it's actually kind of complicated. And I think that what one will find is that, that um, you know, there are, there are many provisions one can imagine, although they're not well codified at all. And it's kind of, many of these provisions will be inconsistent with each other. And so any given organization, country, group of people, whatever, will have to pick. We want these ones and not those ones. And those are at least the beginning of kind of having some sort of uh, way of, of talking about what the ground rules are for how one wants the AIs to operate. Now, I think you know there are there are interesting thought experiments. Like here's a here's a thought experiment. You say, you know, in a current democracy, people just vote for things. You know, they put a check mark or whatever to vote for something. But you know, what if instead of democracy, you have kind of a promptocracy? You say everybody writes a prompt. They write a big essay. You know, I want the world to be this way, and I really care about. Um, uh, you know, llamas, and I don't care about, um, uh, you know, I, I don't care about cars, and I really want this and that and the other thing. Okay, everybody writes a big prompt. Then you feed all those prompts into an AI. And then every time there's a decision to be made, you just ask the AI, what should you do? And the AI then takes some sort of, you know, it, it's been trained from, it's been tuned by looking at all these prompts that people fed in, and it's it then, you know, you give it some other sort of overall principles. Like you say, don't make two inconsistent decisions in the same day. That's really, that's obviously bad. But then 
then that starts to go down a slippery slope because you have to start giving it kind of ground rules which are beyond what the promptocracy told you to do. They're sort of meta rules. And so then you say, well, why don't you just ask the, you know, the promptocracy what to do with those things and do the sort of recursive thing? Well, it leads to all kinds of interesting sort of essentially philosophical issues, which probably fall right back into the same kind of political philosophy issues that people have been talking about for a couple of thousand years. But it's it's something where it's kind of a a, a sort of a at least a thought experiment that gives you some sense of what might now be possible, and uh, and what uh, and I think you know the the things I mean you know how this will actually work out. Uh, you know there are very bad ways it could work out, which like for example you know let's have you know the global set of rules for AIs sort of enforced on the whole world based on the, uh, you know, we're sure we've we figured out correctly the eight provisions that are going to lead to nothing bad happening. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, you know, there's there's a fair amount of science fiction about things that could possibly go wrong. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's an example of something which would be a, a very kind of science-like conclusion. You know, let's just figure out the global right answer and impose that. That's probably a really bad idea. You know, I think the history of the world might have been very different. You know, we have a couple of hundred countries in the world now. If there'd ever come a time in history where it turned into just one country, probably the history of the world would not have been, you know, would have been worse than it's been, so to speak. Probably. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's an example of kind of uh, uh, the type of thing that, you know, one can think about. I think... Uh, you know, I, I I think these problems are quite hard, and I think that it is, if there's one thing that is a bit concerning, is how few people are actually thinking sensibly about these kinds of things. Or even, I mean, you know, I have to say that that as I say, it's 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 far from my usual, you know, beat, so to speak, although. You know, I do happen to know stuff about the various areas that are involved, and so I kind of feel some obligation to think about it. Although I've been, I've been having a hard time figuring out kind of things like sort of the AI-based constitution, what should be in it, and uh, uh, it's 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 very you know one of the things that's difficult about that is one sort of approach you can take is well, just get the AIs to do the kinds of things humans do. Well, people immediately say. Ah, humans do all kinds of ridiculous stuff. We don't want the AIs to do that. We want the AIs to be better than us. We want the AIs to follow what we aspire to be like. Well, the problem is, you know, what humans aspire to be like is a very slippery issue. And and uh, you know, you can go look and whatever, pick your pick your you know your destination. You know, self help books, religious texts, you know, other kinds of places to know what the aspirations might be. Um, and there are many different ones. And and what's also complicated is that, uh, you know, it's kind of like, do the cars all have to drive on a definite side of the road? The answer is, at least right now, until the self-driving cars get a lot smarter, um, you know, there has to be a definite decision made because otherwise, you know, you're not going to, uh, people aren't going to be able to use the road together, so to speak. So it's, it's there's sort of these additional constraints 
where you can't just say, well, I'm going to pick this and I don't really care what anybody else picks. So it gets it gets kind of complicated. And I, I mean, this is for me kind of a, so far, a frustrating thing because I feel like I, I've, uh, I don't feel like I've solved the problems that need to be solved. I think um, uh, it's it's sort of ironic in a sense. I, I work on lots of different kinds of things from you know technology and basic science and so on. And uh, you know we made a bunch of big breakthroughs in understanding how the universe is put together. And so far, that's a lot easier than these kind of everyday questions about sort of AI governance. And I think that's. Um, uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps there are some ways to think about it that will really clarify what's going on. But I haven't really found those yet. I feel better that you're that you're thinking about it um, because they, these are really hard problems. You mentioned that AIs have nothing at stake, and I think that's a really important part when we think about rights and and what they have access to. But a lot of your answer was based around this idea that we're teaching them, we're keeping AI in line, we're setting rules. Are you at all afraid of a world in which, you know, we don't have that control anymore or, you know, they grow beyond us and we're kind of subservient to the AI? I mean, this is like the Terminator kind of vision. But... Well, I mean, look, we don't know what's going on inside AIs right now. And increasingly we won't. But, you know, this is really nothing new in the sense that Look at the natural world in which we live. We don't know what's going on inside lots of systems in the natural world, which affect us. And occasionally, you know, something blows up and it's a big problem and so on. And we have various kinds of theories about what's happening and we try and, you know, control things to some extent. And I, I think the same is kind of going to happen, already happening to some extent with AIs, that there's this kind of layer of AI sort of activity in the world, whether it's the AIs that are picking, you know, what search engine result you see or what social media posts you see, or whether it's AIs doing other kinds of things. There's this kind of layer of, in a sense, nature-like incomprehensible AI that we are kind of existing around. Now, you know, when you say, well, maybe the AIs will just sort of, uh, you know, will, it's, it's a, it's a very kind of human idea to say maybe the AIs will choose to do different kinds of things. The AIs just sort of do what the AIs do. And the AIs in this kind of computational universe of possible things, there's, there's sort of an infinite collection of things the AIs might do. Now, which of those are ones that we humans care about, are problematic for us humans and so on? That's a very kind of human question. I mean, it's very easy to get an AI to, or a computational system to just go out and sample the computational universe and find things utterly incomprehensible to us. Uh, it would be, I, I think it's, um, I mean, there's a very practical point, which is increasingly we connect AIs to sort of systems that actuate things in the world, that systems that actually take physical actions in the world and so on. And you know, that's a place where uh, in, you know, the, the, the things that can happen, yes, bad things can happen if the AI uh, is doing things that uh, for which, which don't happen to be well aligned with what's good for us humans. I don't think that that's a, one shouldn't think of it as being, you know, maybe the AI will advance beyond us 
it's trivial for computational systems to be beyond us. I mean, I've spent a significant part of my life studying the basic science of sort of what's out in the computational universe. And, you know, one of the things that is always there is, you know, you sample these even very simple programs that were not human constructed. They're just programs that exist out in this universe of possibilities. And it's like, wow, that does something really complicated. I don't understand what that's doing. Or you even have a theory that says, you know, these kinds of programs will never do anything interesting. They'll never be able to do this. And then you start looking at a bunch of them, and then one of them does it in a way that you never anticipated. And that's, you know, that's something that's sort of happening all the time. That's not something where there's got to be some long chain of, you know, AIs getting more and more elaborate. That's a very immediate thing. The real question is just whether you've chosen to connect sort of an actuation system to something which is kind of an AI that's that's off doing its own thing, and that's a that's kind of a um, uh, it's more a question of of kind of the the human choices associated with what AIs are set up to actuate in the world. When you mentioned that, I need to run off fairly soon, so. So we should. Yeah, sure. Probably. One more question, if that if that's okay. Or yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Uh, Stephen, just to close out, um, in the, I guess like the cryptos or, or unstoppable cr- programs kind of world, there's this view that AI can mix with those technologies and accrue value in, call it tokens, dollars, etc. Convince humans to do certain things, uh, to to generate more and more power, and they can have this value not only in computation but in in monetary movements right have you thought at all about that side of things because it, it seems like it's a, it's a pretty easy next step when i came up with this concept of computational irreducibility in the 1980s i kind of saw it as being an indication of sort of limitations on science i did not anticipate that a few decades later it would be kind of the the core idea behind you know proof of work where one was sort of just running these computations where one couldn't get to the answer without spending a lot of computational effort and that that was being used as kind of a proxy for value. That was a very kind of charmingly unanticipated uh, kind of consequence of that idea in basic science. Now, if you ask the question, if you say, can we make kind of proof of useful work, so to speak, can we do something where we are sort of running the AIs as a... um, uh, where sort of the, the computational effort of, of running AIs is um, uh, is the thing that's generating value. Um, I mean, you know, as a pure sort of crypto type protocol, I don't know how to do that. Um, I've certainly thought about it. Um, I think, uh, um, and the difficulty is usually that to know that something is useful, you or to know that something did what it was supposed to do, you have to be able to check the answer. And most of the time, the by the time you can check the answer, it wasn't really worth doing, so to speak. So in other words, by the time you have a way to, if it says, go discover something new and exciting, okay, and it goes and discovers it, and it says, the answer is, the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 311. You say, great, I can't check that that's right. You know, I, maybe you just made that up and it didn't take any computational effort at all. So that, that's why that gets to be hard. I mean, I, I think 
the um, the question, well, the most obvious relationship between AI and the kind of crypto-type world is the idea of computational contracts and the idea that you, what you were representing in legalese as a human contract, you can represent in computational language. And I mean, you know, the smart contracts that live on blockchains are basically about things about blockchains. They're not typically about the world. I mean, I guess with uh, the Wolfram Alpha API is, is, the, is the primary source of so-called Oracle data for, uh, for smart contracts. And, you know, the volume of such Oracle calls is extremely low and it remains extremely low. So most of what's happening in sort of pure smart contracts is purely things that are just known to the blockchain, so to speak. They don't engage with what's out there in the world. When you think about a full sort of contract of the time that people make between each other and so on, those refer to things in the world, refer to real things happening in the world, so to speak. And uh, sort of encoding those in a computational way, that's the kind of story of this computational language we've spent so much effort building Sometimes you'll say, you know, uh, there'll be a judgment call to make. You know, is this uh, is this an overripe banana that is not going to be, you know, accepted for this shipment or not? And you know, there can be an image classifier that says this is an overripe banana, and that's something that goes, you know, it's a little bit beyond the sort of the pure formal kind of thing. It's something more kind of AI-like, but that's something where. In general, the idea of sort of formalizing things about contracts and so on about the world is something that is surely something that will happen. I mean, you know, it's happened in very specific cases. It happened in the case of, you know, options contracts in, in, you know, in stock markets, commodities markets, things like this. It hasn't happened even in terms of things like mortgages. You know, if, if mortgages had been computational contracts, there probably wouldn't have been a mortgage crisis because people would have actually known, you know, what all these mortgages said, so to speak. You know, just as they kind of know what it means when you have a, you know, I don't know what, you know, a Bermuda option with this or that thing. It's kind of a, a well-defined uh, sort of computational lump of computation that represents that. The so I think the um, uh, the thing that kind of is is. Uh, going towards computational contracts is a thing that will surely eventually happen, then what happens is one gets these giant networks of autonomously executing contracts. I mean, just like, you know, you might say, oh, you know, if there are computational contracts, nobody will need lawyers anymore. Um, quite to the contrary, I think, because, you know, the whole activity of writing these contracts, it'll be much easier to make contracts and to have them executed. I mean, it's kind of like the paperless office in the, in the time of laser printers and so on. It's kind of like it got so much easier to produce paper that a lot more of it got done. And, and I think the same thing will happen here. But then you have a picture of the world where, where there's all these different sort of contracts and, and interactions between autonomous agents that exist in the world. And maybe something happens, you know, a drop of rain falls somewhere and you know the weather insurance contract starts firing and that causes this to happen and that to happen and so on and you have this big sort of chain of of activity which is sort of mirrors what happens in the in the natural world you know the drop of rain falls and eventually it you know 
goes into a stream, which turns into a river, which you know does which which uh, uh, you know allows the frog to jump across the whatever, etc., etc., etc. And it's you know it's something that's not unfamiliar from what happens in the natural world. But I think that this kind of this whole sort of infrastructure of of computational processes happening, uh, some of that that will some of it will contain sort of what we now think of as sort of neural net AI-ish stuff. Some of it will be more purely computational. But I think that's a thing that one will certainly see happen. And in terms of what that means for, um, uh, well, you know, I've always thought that in the world of crypto and so on, the there were always kinds of types of transactions that were involved sort of so little money that you know people are going to be perfectly happy with just some you know some entity with centralized capabilities and so on just doing it and if it messes up well you won't use that one again but it doesn't matter you only lost 10 bucks or something and then there are ones where there's 10 million dollars at stake and most people you know particularly after the you know the dow fiasco and things like this most people are going to say we don't really want that to be totally automated based just on code we want some human you know court to be in the middle of that whole thing and if things go really weird some human is you know something happens that's really unexpected instead of it just being a piece of code just sort of mindlessly deciding what will happen we want a human involved um and maybe there's a place in the middle where uh kind of uh, there's there's some um, sort of a a value in that, and there certainly are places where it's convenient to have kind of a, you know, there are multiple entities that all want to kind of agree on what's on a ledger and so on. And that's that's a convenient thing. But I, you know, I think, I mean, it's sort of interesting because the way I see crypto as a, as a sort of, I don't know, uh, I don't know, business phenomenon or something is, you know, it's kind of a little bit like the cloud. When the cloud came in, so to speak, everybody had all this, you know, software that was being distributed in this or that way. And people said, reset, you know, there's a new way to do this. Let's redo a bunch of the software and make it SaaS software, so to speak. And it seems like when crypto comes in, then people say, oh, we got these transaction systems. They were written 50 years ago. And now, you know, the reset, there's a different way to do this. Let's at least, you know, try and think about this in a different way. And I think that's, you know, that from the sort of societal point of view, I think that's one of the main things that happens. And by the way, we're seeing the same kind of thing with AI right now. That um, uh, is um, um, uh, the uh, uh, you know I'm also somewhat charmed because uh, I I do notice this you know the LLM startup world. There's an awful lot of ex crypto yeah. uh, people who are and uh, it really amused amused me to no end when when when. You know, LLMs started coming on the scene, and uh, people were like hoarding GPU chips and so on. And it's like it's Bitcoin mining all over again. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and then, in a sense, that same playbook of saying, you know, we want to be the you know the billion dollar LLM that's going to have you know more GPUs than everybody else. We're going to win. I don't think that's a great bet. Um, but I. I think it's I, I think like raising billions of dollars of venture capital just to compete to buy more NVIDIA each one hundreds is not a winning strategy, but I might be in the minority here. Well, I think the the thing is, 
it's a very, it's a complicated dance right now because on the one hand, there is actual science and technology about what's possible. And it is the case that the larger models are, are, are more sensible than smaller ones. There is something that happens when you get to these larger models where they successfully learn some kind of semantic grammar thing, which the smaller models don't successfully learn. Now, my guess is that one will, a lot of what's in there is a lot of like computational knowledge facts that is just gumming up, you know, billions of, of, of weights that just don't need to be there. You can just, you know, you know, just ask Wolfram Alpha or something when you need to know that fact. You don't need to store that in a in a cluster of you know ten thousand weights. Um, so you know, I think that there's a the the idea of having LLMs be purely the linguistic interface and the common sense necessary to support the linguistic interface that will probably shrink their size greatly. But that's a science problem. I mean, that's a and it's it's not clear how difficult that is. It's not clear how long it will take to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the notion that um, uh, it's, um, and it's also not clear, you know, people thought, well, for example, training from what's already been trained. You know, in recent times in protein folding, there's been, it seems like significant success in that area. You have this great big sort of terabytes of data, you know, alpha fold thing, and then you train from that and you can make something much smaller that essentially distills the knowledge of that system. And, uh, you know, that might work. It doesn't seem to be working as well with LLMs um, as it worked in that case, or it seems to be working in that case. But again, that's that these are sort of science technology questions, which I think are very hard to to immediately know the answer to. I think as a, as a practical matter, there's a, you know, a great kind of commercial pressure to sort of, it's, uh, you know, there's a there's a certain desire to centralize kind of the the um kind of the the story of AI in the same way that things like search engines got centralized. I mean, it, it's a funny thing that some things in the history of sort of modern technology got centralized, some didn't. You know, email didn't really get centralized, the web didn't really get centralized. You know, search engines got centralized, social media got centralized. Um, is it necessary that those got centralized? Well, not really. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, oh, is it necessary that the sort of winner takes all in those situations? Um, I think it is. It's complicated. I mean, it's a question of what the sort of uh, you know is it really important to spend that, those billion dollars to do this thing, or do you get something almost as good by spending a million dollars? And is the difference between almost as good and what you get with a billion dollars? something that you more than make up for by different use cases or a different kind of wrapping to the whole thing, different user experience or whatever else it is. And I think those are things where the um, uh, sort of what what exists today, I mean, it, it's a where, uh, and then throw into that the kind of, uh, oh my gosh, we should be afraid of the AIs, you know, governments should should be involved in telling us what to do. I mean, you know, from the, this slightly jaded old guy like me, who's, you know, as soon as people say it's really dangerous, the government should come and help us and so on. It's kind of like that translates to me in, in the, you know, it's a sort of attention getting strategy that also tends to be a kind of, uh, uh, the, um, 
What's that? Counter indicator indicator or Yeah, yeah. I mean, well it's a it's a it's a well, I don't know. It's a, it's a thing where where it's kind of like like by the time there's regulation, it's only big companies and it's it's just it all gets it all gets very um uh it's always a sort of a different story from from um uh but but I do think that that this whole I mean, it's been interesting over the last six months or so to see kind of the evolution of LLM mania, so to speak. Um, I mean, the you know, at the beginning, it was just, it was very surprising to everybody, including me, including you know, people who were working on it. Um, it was, and it's always the case when people, when something sort of shocking and surprising happens like that, I think people have a natural tendency to think, Okay, one shock happened. Then there's going to be another shock, and another one, and another one. But maybe there's just one, and um, you know, it's uh, and then kind of the way that, uh, and I, I would say that that, I mean, my feeling is so far, and I, you know, this is one of these week by week things because it's it's uh, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. But it does seem like you know there was one big threshold that got reached. And then we're sort of bubbling around, getting a little bit better, um, sometimes get a little worse as well. But, um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, and the big story is going to be about sort of connecting kind of this sort of new level of AI to computation, which is something very powerful that's sort of a complement to it, and thinking about how you actually set up use cases that really play to the strengths of what's been produced. I think that's, you know, that would be my, uh, uh, you know, that's that's my feeling about what's what's going to be the most valuable. And it will become just like image identification, which is a tool that's used in all kinds of things. But what really matters is, you know, where's it, you know, what's it going to be used for? Is it going to be used for identifying stop signs or is it going to be used for this or that? It's the use cases that matter Rather than the generic cat versus dog kind of uh, kind of case, and I'm I'm guessing this is sort of going the same way, um, which is uh, you know it's a it's an important piece of technology and it's going to affect a lot of different areas um, as a component, so to speak, and and it will affect as I was saying before, it will affect a bunch of jobs that people kind of assumed were pure human activities um, and. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and make them things that are automated. That's anyway. Steven, I uh, want to respect your time. Um, you stayed longer than, than you promised. And I really appreciate all of your comments. I, I learned a lot and it's, it's again, surreal to have you on. And, and I thank you for Wolfram Alpha and just your amazing post in LM. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.